Good morning. Pleasure to worship with you this morning. And uh, as Tim said in his prayer, I'm thankful for our mild winter so far, uh, easing me into this whole Midwestern thing. But uh, Keith's words are ringing in my ears. It's not cold yet. <laughs> Every time it gets a little bit colder. So, uh, But no, I, I'm grateful that uh, no matter the weather outside, we can gather together and that uh, we can make sure that we prioritize worshiping the Lord and being together and encouraging one another and uh, grateful for all the blessings that we have in Christ. Uh, so so thankful to partake in those this, even this morning as we worship. This morning I have something a little bit different planned for the sermon time, uh, and the plan this morning is to do a hymn study. I think hymn studies are beneficial to us, uh, though, in, in many ways. Uh, on the one hand, it's good to think about and understand the words we are singing. Uh, how many times do we sing things and be like, wait a minute, what does that even mean? Well, I don't know. I guess we've got to move on to the next line, though. So, And then we forget about it until the next time we sing the song, and then we never really understand what we're singing. I mean, the the time that it took before I understood what an Ebenezer was, here I raised my Ebenezer. Well, what is that? It's a stone of help. Okay, there you go. But didn't know that. And so a lot of times we can go through our lives singing these songs a million times and uh, not really know what they mean. So uh, that's one beneficial thing about a hymn study is we can examine those. Uh, But secondly, a good hymn points us to and helps us internalize Scripture. A a good hymn focuses us on Scripture and is rooted in Scripture. And so a hymn study can help us be even more cognizant of that and realize, wow, these words we're singing, I mean, they sounded familiar, but They're not just familiar because we sing them all the time. They're familiar because they come from the scriptures themselves. They come directly from the inspired word of God. Uh, And so so that's a value of a hymn study to help us think more directly about how these words are really scriptural words. And then also, I think uh, hymn studies help us connect multiple aspects of our worship together. Uh, Our songs are not to be disjointed or some separate practice from our, our preaching and our prayers and even our observance of the Lord's Supper. And so when we do a hymn study, we're connecting our singing, obviously, but we're also thinking about praying to God, which the song we're going to study this morning is a prayer to God. Uh, we connect it with our preaching, is obviously doing that in a, in a preaching setting, and, and even the reading of Scripture. I mean, all those things are connected when we look at Him. Uh, and so I, I think there's a lot of value in doing that, so uh, maybe I've at least made a decent case for why I'm using the sermon time this morning to, to do that. Uh, but I think it'll be beneficial. Uh, it's been beneficial for me to study this hymn. The hymn I want to look at with you this morning is the hymn Abide With Me. And Abide With Me is one of the most beloved hymns of all time. Uh, and that's interesting to me. i tell you why. It's interesting to me because that hymn is largely about death. It's I mean, it's very premise. It's focused on death. Fast falls the eventide. Well, that's the eventide of life, the evening of life. Life quickly goes away. Uh, the darkness deepens. That's talking about the, the incoming darkness of death. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. and saying life ends quickly. Life is headed quickly towards its end. Earth's glories pass away, change and decay in all around I see. Where is death's sting? It talks about the the grave. It talks about uh, someone's closing eyes, as in in death, and it, then it talks about the gloom of death. Those are kind of dark lyrics, to be honest with you. 
And so you start to wonder, why is this hymn so beloved by people? But partially, I think it is well-beloved as a funeral song. It's comforting, and we sing it a lot at funerals. And so, sure, we can use it in that context because it is about death, and we like it. And we're comforted by it. But I think it's more than just that. I mean, we sing it all the time in worship assemblies. And, and I know a lot of people who just love this song outside of its use for funerals. I have a preacher friend who said it was the first song he ever led as a kid. And he was like 10 years old. I mean, that, that's significant. Why would somebody at that age love this song, even the words? And then I, my brother-in-law seems, picks this song a lot. Brett is who I'm talking about. But uh, picks this song a lot at family singings for us to sing. And uh, I, I'm always thankful for that. I haven't really talked to him about it, see if it's his actual favorite song or anything. But uh, clearly that song means a lot to, to him as well. And then, I mean, myself, it was the first song I led as a, as a kid. And, uh, and, and I, I just love the song too. So why? why? Why would we love this song so much when it's so dark and it talks about death? Well, I think what this song does is it acknowledges what in reality we all see what we all feel and what we all understand is going to happen to us and is the reality of this world, which is that death is the central issue of life. Death really is the central issue of life. Things decay. We look around us, and that is what we see. We see change. Things don't stay the same. We were talking on the phone on, on, or on Zoom or some kind of video chat with David and Heidi Bunting on Friday night about uh, giving birth at Kish and all that kind of stuff, getting some tips from them. And then we were telling them about our doctor because we have the same doctor, but a lot of things had changed that they were telling us. And we were like, oh, no, he's not even at the practice anywhere. They were like, that fast? And like, wow, things change so quickly. And they really do. Things change like that all around us. I mean... You people who grew up here, does Sycamore look the same as it did when, when you were younger? Not at all, right? So things change quickly. We, we understand that, but that's our reality. You know, we, while it's sad that things change and things decay, that's part of living. And that's part of experiencing life. And so without us, around us, I mean, and, and within us as well, things wear out. Things don't naturally get more fresh. They, they don't naturally get newer. They, they get older, and they, they wear out. They get more tired. And even our bodies show us this. Anybody feeling that at this point? <laughs> Probably a lot of us could raise our hands uh, on that. But what I think this song does in view of that is it introduces a contrast. In contrast to everything and everybody here on this earth who fails, who eventually tires out, and who ultimately is subject to the natural process of death, in contrast to all that, God does not fail. God does not get tired. God is not subject to the natural process of death, which we all eventually will undergo unless the Lord comes back. And so think of the principle given to us in Proverbs chapter 3. I was thinking of this text a lot when it comes to this contrast. Starting in verse 5, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There's a difference between us and God. We are fleeting. We wear out. We get sick. We are subject to death. And that's why the Proverbs writer here says, don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. 
Damascus, he can be relied upon when you can't. And so the bad news is we are not a great foundation on which to build our trust for this life and our trust for beyond this life. Uh, we're, not a, we're not a great foundation because we all die. And for the same reason, other humans even, even if they're younger and, and stronger than we are right now, they're also not the best foundation because guess what? They're going to die too. Again, unless the Lord comes back, we can put that caveat in there. But uh, you, you understand my point. But God, on the other hand, has revealed himself to us, and he has invited us to trust in him. And truly, he is trustworthy because he does not grow weary. He doesn't get tired. His body doesn't wear out. He doesn't get those aches and pains that we get as we get older. He doesn't decay. He doesn't change. And he does not die. And that's a comfort to us. And so while the hymn, Abide With Me, reminds us of death... The truth is, we all kind of know that's coming anyway. We know that. We're staring that straight in the face, looking right down the barrel of, of death. And so the beautiful thing this hymn does is it gives us hope. It gives us hope by pointing us to one who is greater and above all that we fear and all that we struggle with. And this hymn acknowledges that, yes, all around us we see trials and we see sickness and decay and death. But if we're a Christian, it reminds us that we don't have to fear those things because of who God is, if indeed he abides with us. And so this hymn was originally taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 28 and 29. That's not the text where we're going to spend our time this morning. But that text says, it's talking about Jesus uh, on the road to Emmaus with, with those, those people. And the text says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. Talking about Jesus and the people he was walking with. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, abide with us or stay with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And so you can hear how much of the language in the song was borrowed from this text uh, using the evening time, the eventide, as a metaphor for our lives, which quickly go away as we near death, just as this time of year the, the sunset comes real quick around 4 o'clock. <laughs> so similar kind of thing. It's using that, that metaphor. But after analyzing the hymn, it's become clear to me that a lot of concepts within the hymn draw deeply on other biblical principles found far outside Luke chapter 24. And interestingly enough, though, I found that when you look at all the concepts that are discussed in the hymn Abide With Me, basically all of them can find some connection to one book, the book of James, which was a surprise, but worked out great for a sermon. So that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles to the book of James, and then I'm not going to have the text of the hymn on the screen, so open your hymnal to number 308, 308, so just go ahead and Use your third and fourth arms for that, and you can have your Bible in the other. <laughs> but but uh, while you're getting there, I'll just uh, mention that, that my plan as we go through the study this morning is to center our study of the hymn around the book of James, and we're going to sort of use James chapter 4 and verse 8 as a theme passage uh, as we look at the song, which says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So, if your Bibles are open uh, to the book of James and your hymnals are open to number 308, uh, abide with me. Let's, let's dig in. Verse 1 of the hymn says, Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. 
The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O oh, abide with me. So first of all, this verse, I think, finds a parallel in James chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So I think the first thing we see from this hymn and then from this text in James chapter 1 is that we need God to abide with us because he is faithful. Because he is faithful, though earthly friends and even family are not always faithful. The reality that James points us to and that the hymn points us to is that we're going to encounter trials in this life. That is part of being human. That's part of living on this earth is encountering these trials. And a lot of times... Those trials cause other people to run away and to not want to help us because our problems are just too much for them to handle. That happened to Jesus. It was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quoted that prophecy in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31 and then also in Mark 14, but saying to his closest friends, the chosen 12 apostles, these were, if anybody was going to be there for him, it was going to be these guys. But Jesus told them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's Matthew twenty six thirty one. And you know where that passage is? That is right before Jesus's crucifixion. If there was ever a time when he needed friends, this was it. This was his darkest hour. He's in the garden, weeping. That's where he's about to go to. And this would be his hardest trial of everything he would face. Unimaginable suffering lay ahead, and he knew that. So of all the times to need friends, that was it. And yet, these people deserted him. His closest friends scattered, were sleeping, denied him. That's what laid ahead. And yet, what Jesus shows us is that even when other people forsake us, other helpers fail and comforts flee, God is always there and is always faithful if we will seek him. And that's what's shown to us in James as well. If we'll ask God for wisdom to help us endure those trials, he is always faithful and he will not forsake us, that he'll grant us our request if we ask in faith. And that's what James 1 and verse 5 promises us there. God's faithfulness to hear our cry and grant our request when we need his help, his wisdom in dealing with our trials and in dealing with just life, even when all others are not much help to us, just as Jesus found that to be the case, even in his darkest hour. Indeed, God is the God of the helpless. He has shown himself to be that time and time again, even when other helpers fail and comforts flee, he will answer us. And if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us and abide with us, and he will be faithful. Verse 2 of the hymn, swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. 
Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. I think the thing we can see from this verse is we need God to abide with us because he does not change, though everything else and everyone else around us and even within us does change. Look at James chapter 1, drop down to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This has long been one of my favorite verses in the Bible and probably my favorite part of this hymn, quite honestly. The author, what he's emphasizing here is the fleeting, the expiring, the vanishing nature of life and even that nature of the joys that this earth has to offer us. And then the author says that truly he feels surrounded by those things. He feels surrounded by change and decay and nothing's lasting. What does he grab onto? And that, that's cause for great fear and great alarm, honestly. But then he says, O thou who changest not, abide with me. That's a comfort. And honestly, to me, that is one of the most comforting things about our God, that he does not change. When everything else changes, nothing can be relied upon in this life. God can. And so when I think about James 1.17, a lot of times I think about this hymn and vice versa. But when you consider the context of the Old Testament studies we've been looking at, and you see how Israel is unfaithful, God's people are one moment, they're doing great, and then the next moment they're sinning and forsaking God. One moment they're enjoying God's blessings and deliverance because of their faithfulness and and crying out to him, and then the next they've rebelled and they're perishing in the wilderness. I mean, they are up and down and up and down and up and down consistently throughout their history. And you're like, man, pick pick a side. Like, decide what you're going to do and just do that. But they don't. Constantly changing. And yet, where is God? God doesn't perish in the wilderness. God doesn't forsake his people and rebel. God doesn't even get frustrated enough that he actually does abandon his covenant with them. Though clearly that was a very real possibility and he would have been right to do that. But he didn't. God does not change. And even throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, what we find is that God does not change. And even to today, God continues to fulfill his promises that he made All the way back in, guess what? Genesis chapter 12. A long time ago. Basically, near the very beginning of all this. And guess what? He's still fulfilling those promises today. We are blessed through the seed of Abraham. Even a promise as far back as in Genesis 3 and verse 15. That promise that one would come who would bruise and crush Satan has been fulfilled And is continually fulfilled as Jesus helps us defeat Satan and his temptations. I think truly we'd be hard-pressed to find a greater comfort than that that is our God. That is our God. He doesn't change. He's always faithful, even when everything else and everyone else is changing all the time. And that's the nature of life. Change and decay are inevitable. And we're going to continue to see those things run their course. But both James, the inspired author, and the author of this hymn would point us to one who cares deeply for us. 
who invites us to trust not in our changing selves, but in his constant self. And promises, again, that if we'll draw near to us, uh, excuse me, draw near to him, then he will abide with us. We need God to abide with us because he doesn't change. Then verse 3 of the hymn. Come not in terrors as the king of kings, but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea. Come, friend of sinners, thus abide with me. We also need God to abide with us because he is merciful. Because he's merciful, even when others around us are not so merciful. You see this contrast of what sometimes people are and are not, and then what God always is? I hope that's clear as we go through this. But we need God to abide with us because he's merciful, even when everyone else isn't always so merciful. Flip over to chapter 5 of the book of James. Chapter 5 and verse 15 talking about when people are sick, and it's my understanding of that text that primarily what's being discussed is spiritual sickness and the need for spiritual healing, though there may be some application to to physical sickness as well. But James 5 and verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. God is faithful to forgive us. He's merciful in that way. But you know what? Sometimes people aren't always that way. People don't always act like like God does in that way. Sometimes it can feel like people are just always critical. You ever felt that way? You can't do anything right. You You try to do anything. Give it your best, and then somebody finds something wrong with it. Come on. Everything we do, somebody finds something to pick at about it. Although, if we're honest with ourselves... Have we ever been the one doing the criticizing like that? Probably so. Probably so. But have you ever made a mistake, or even a few mistakes, and apologized, repented, etc., for those mistakes? But it seems like there's somebody, or maybe even multiple people, who just can't let it go. (laughs) They just want to bring it up every chance they get. Hey, remember when you did that? Oh, man. Every time you see him. Thanks a lot for that. Really appreciate that. I mean, that can be the case about ridiculous things that, that we've said that, that weren't wrong, but were just kind of silly. Like when Cassie's family was going to vacation in Florida, and she said, hey, is Florida near the beach? <laughs> and of course, years later, we're still telling that story. Her <laughs> um, brothers in particular like to bring that one up. <laughs> But a lot of times, people won't let us live stuff down that's a little more serious than just silly things that we say that we didn't think through. That can be the case about our past sins. We can struggle mightily because of people who have a hard time forgiving us, who have a hard time seeing past those things we did, even if we've sought forgiveness. That is another reality of life. We talk about change and decay being inevitable, but another thing that's probably inevitable is People are going to have a hard time forgiving us sometimes and letting things go, which leads us to have a hard time forgetting and forgiving ourselves. And the truth that this song points us to, that gives us such comfort in that, is that even though God is the King of Kings, He is also, as the song suggests, the ultimate friend of sinners. 
He's not the friend of sinners in the sense that he's willing to dwell with or tolerate sin, obviously. But he is the friend of sinners in the sense that if we will repent and seek his forgiveness, he gives it freely every time. He is merciful like no other. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's what James 5.15 points us to as well. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. So you can see all these things about God go together to form one big comforting picture because he doesn't change. Every morning his mercies are new. He doesn't wake up and say, I'm sick today. I'm taking the day off. We do that a lot, some of us. Especially when we're sick for way longer than we want to be. (laughs) But God doesn't do that. Every morning his mercies are new. Unlike us humans who often have a hard time not being critical, even if somebody's trying their best after making mistakes, God is immediately willing to forgive and remove our sins as far from us as the East is from the West, if we'll repent. His mercy is amazing, and it offers comfort that no human can ever offer. And admittedly, sometimes our friends and our family are good comforters, and, and share our woes and share our tears as well. But the reality, sometimes their mercy and their compassion is exhausted because they're human and they are limited. We all are. And so where do we turn then? Well, the good news is it's not so with God. He is and he will always be a friend to every sinner who wants to repent and wants to come back to him. And that's described all of us at some point in our lives. We've all fallen short and needed that from God. And guess what? He has always been faithful and merciful to forgive us. We need God because he is merciful. Verse 4. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and strength can be? Through cloud and sunshine... Oh, abide with me. I think this verse points us to the truth that we need God to abide with us because of his powerful grace. Because other humans are not strong enough to actually defeat temptation. They can't offer God's grace. James chapter 1, back back to chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then flip over to chapter 4 of the book of James. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. James 4 and verse 6, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice in our, in our first text here in James chapter 1, it says, God cannot be tempted. It's not possible. Anybody else find that true of yourself? Never, never been tempted? No temptation? You sure? Going once? Okay. No. That's only true of God. Even the strongest of us is going to be subject to Satan's temptation. 
And certainly our brothers and sisters in Christ are here for us to lean on and to help us in some of those trials and temptations. But ultimately, you'll notice nobody else, well, nobody <laughs> raised their hand. Nobody raised their hand as being immune to temptation. We're all fallible too. We're all prone to the same challenges that we're facing and needing help with. And, of course, we differ in maybe what Satan may try with us because of our, our different challenges and weaknesses, and so we can help each other in that way, but, but we're all fallible. And God is not that way. God can't be tempted, James says, and therefore what God makes is God makes the perfect helper in times of temptation. He, he is so powerful and so strong that he can't be tempted. That's somebody we want on our side helping us. But not only is it his strength, his inability to be tempted that makes him the perfect helper in our temptations, but his grace is also key in suiting him so perfectly for that role. Others may want to help, but their strength runs out. Their grace is not God's grace. Their grace can encourage us, and certainly we want to give grace in our speech, as the scriptures encourage us to do, but God's grace can literally send the devil packing powerful grace. Being gracious in our speech and our actions is great, but God's grace is powerful. And that's why I've described it that way. It's amazing. What but God's grace can completely foil or crush the power of Satan to tempt us? It's not anything in us. I can tell you that from personal experience. There is none like God, none like God who can be our guide and our constant. He is true power. He has all power, and yet his grace is also greater than any other. And so we need God to abide with us because we need his powerful grace to overcome the very real temptations that plague us on a daily basis. Verse 5, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where, grave, thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. We need God to abide with us because he is always victorious. Everybody else is subject to foes, subject to ills, subject to tears, and ultimately subject to death. Not so with God. James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Nobody else can offer us that. Nobody else can offer us that certain victory, that crown of life, victory over death, over all ills and tears, because they're all subject to death and ills and tears themselves. Nobody can offer us something greater than that, if they are subject to those things. I mean, sure, some people can win some battles. They can have a few victories, but it's just prolonging the inevitable. And what that means is ultimately our fear still remains because all we've done through human help is push off our fate a little further down the calendar. And it's just going to come up eventually. Even the best doctor gets sick. Even the best surgeon is himself going to die one day. Even the best therapist has breakdowns themselves and cries sometimes. 
But God is not like that. Praise God. God is greater. God doesn't get sick. God isn't subject to impending death. The Son of God died, but no one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. Not like us. God isn't limited by all these things that limit us and all these things that we fear. And in a way, we fear them rightly because we are subject to them. We have no power in ourselves to overcome them. But God can. He's not limited by all all those things. And because of this, his victory is certain. And that is why he can offer us what he does, as described in James 1 and verse 12, the crown of life. When you have a God who's not subject to any of those things that we fear so much, you can know victory is certain. None of those things can defeat us. Those are the best things Satan can throw at us. Ills, fears, foes, weights, death. God's not subject to that. And so he makes the perfect helper because he is always victorious. We can remove that fear from our hearts. We can take comfort and confidence in the crown of life that he's promised because he's always victorious. And so just as God has always fulfilled his promises throughout time, just as God does not change, so we can know that he can and will fulfill them even today. He'll fulfill them tomorrow and he will fulfill them forever. God is always victorious. Verse 6. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. We need God to abide with us because he is eternal. Everything and everybody else is going to die. Not so with God. Everything else. Everybody else. But God. James chapter 1, verse 9. James 1 and verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But then there's that verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We looked at James 1, verse 12, in that previous verse of the hymn that we just talked about, but if we take a step back in the text, we'll see that James 1.12 is, is offered to us specifically in the context of verses 9 through 11. I guess that goes without saying, but anyway. Take a look at, at verses 9 through 11 in particular. What those verses tell us is that even a person who is filled and rich with the possessions of this world, they've got everything you could want in this world, they're going to lose it all because they're going to die. Death comes to all. And the same is true of the rest of creation. Everybody, everything, they will die. The grass withers, the flower falls. None of creation is eternal. But the Creator is. The Creator is eternal. And again, that's because He's not subject to death. Because He is eternal, that He offers those who would draw near to Him a crown of life and can offer them that in confidence. A lot of people try to hold on to a lot of things that give them purpose, that give them comfort, that make them feel better about all this. 
everybody's subject to that. Not everybody has God, but everybody has these fears. Everybody's going to die. But you know what's sad is that ultimately all those things besides God that people try to hold on to are going to be subject to, guess what, the same change and decay that has caused the person's fear in the first place. And so we have to remind ourselves that the only one who is eternal is God. And so he alone can be a true source of confidence, a true source of comfort, even as we pass from this life into the next. Because even in his eternal nature, he has reached down into our world and into time, which he created by placing his son among us, Emmanuel, God with us. And his son, in turn, offered us away to the Father. That is, being united with Jesus in suffering, but suffering in a meaningful way, different from the suffering of the world. Suffering knowing that what the testing of our faith can produce, as James tells us, is steadfastness, which ultimately makes us perfect and complete. A most blessed thought. It's only possible through the way open for us by Jesus Christ. So quickly this morning, a few take-home points. First of all, stop looking to other humans or things on this earth to be what only God can be. We've shown consistently and seen consistently, here's what humans are, changing, decaying. Sometimes their mercy runs out, their patience runs out, their compassion runs out, their bodies run out, their, their life runs out. God does not run out. And so why, why would we look to other people or physical things on this earth to be what only God can ever be? Let's put our trust in him. Because no one else really is trustworthy like he is. And so instead, draw even closer to God. Let go of the world. Draw near to God and he will abide with you. He'll give you all these blessings. To you, he'll be faithful not only will he be faithful, he, he, he will not change on you. He'll be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll be merciful to you. He'll be gracious to you and use his power for your good. He will be victorious for you. And ultimately, he will be eternal and be with you as you pass into the next life. We need to be close to him at all times. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then finally, let's, let's be faithful to God so that we can be confident of our reward. Take another look at, at verse 12 of chapter 1 of the book of James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let's be faithful to God. Can't, can't forget that. Let's remain steadfast when we encounter trials so that we can have that confidence that the promised crown of life is ours. And ultimately, what is the crown of life but living to God, living with God and abiding with God forever, eternally? I'm grateful for that comfort. We all need that, that comfort from time to time. There are moments where we think we're strong and we can do it on our own, and that's what leads us to sin. And then there are moments that remind us powerfully of these truths, that we can't do it on our own. We need God to abide with us.
I didn't bring my phone up here. Oh, there's an actual pitch pipe. Wow. <laughs> How do you use this thing? <laughs> Let's sing the hymn, and hopefully we can sing it with more meaning and more understanding uh, this morning than maybe we have in the past. Amen. Is God abiding with you this morning? Question for all of us to think about. We truly need his presence. We need all these things from God. Nobody else can be what he is to us. Is he that to you this morning? If he's not, I pray you'll, you'll make a change and obey him, whether for the first time being baptized for the remission of your sins or coming back to him and rededicating yourself to him. A challenge for all of us to think about this morning while together we stand while we sing the invitation song.